0: the coffee bible church one of them is remembering when to breathe so you can go for the high note on oh ho- holy night right <laughs> so uh anyway great stuff um christmas is just over a week away and uh, as part of our celebration here at advent season uh, i want to focus our attention on an often overlooked part of the christmas story Uh, It's found in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. Uh, And as you make your way there, I'd like to ask you all a question. Um, How would you respond if you knew from before you were born that your destiny in life was to be the second greatest? The second greatest. Not the greatest, The second greatest? What if the pinnacle of your life was to serve as the best man at the king's wedding or maid of honor to the queen? Uh, Or to uh, use a sports analogy, what if your greatest moment was being part of a team that almost won the Super Bowl? What if capping off your career in politics meant ending it as vice president rather than president? Everybody remembers when royalty gets married. Uh, Everybody remembers who won the Super Bowl, but nobody remembers who almost won. Nobody remembers... You know, if you ask my son Nathan who the last 40 presidents have been, he can probably tell you in order. But I I think even he would be challenged by who all the vice presidents were. Because who cares? Right? You know? In fact, one of the guys who held the job said the vice presidency isn't worth a pitcher of warm spit. (laughs) Okay? He was... um, he was kind of negative on the whole thing. He was FDR's vice president for one of his terms and then somebody else after that <laughs> because FDR was less than impressed by his assessment. Uh, but in any case, if that was your destiny, to be almost the greatest, what would you, what would you think of that? To be, to be the second greatest at something. And I ask that question because it's directly relevant to the life of John the Baptist, the person whose life I want to look at with you this week. Uh, He's an important character in the Bible, but he's one that we often don't think much about because he is the second greatest figure of his generation. I'm also interested in answering that question because I think it's directly relevant to you and to me because whether you know it or not, each of us is called, like John, to be the second greatest person in our own life. And to make much of Jesus and to uh, make less of ourselves, just like John had as his calling. And I think this passage reveals some important things to us. And so I want to look at the scriptures together. Um, aren't there yet, find your way over to Luke chapter 1, and then let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us the scriptures, you give us abundant uh, writing about um, ordinary people like us, Uh, people who are sinful, people who who struggle to be obedient, people who Uh, aren't always faithful people who are um, not really heroic in many ways and yet have moments of great and glorious obedience where they see clearly and they walk by faith Uh, because father these are people that we can we can wrap our arms around their stories and we can follow their examples and you also give us people like john who is a great and shining example of faithfulness of whom jesus himself said of those born of woman none is greater than john and yet father you lay his story next to that of jesus and john says he must become greater and i must become less father as we look at john's story this morning help us to Have his attitude about ourselves that Jesus must be greater and we must be less. And Father, we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, help your word to speak to us uh, as we know that it is intended to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I jump into the story, since I'm beginning at verse 57. It's pretty obvious that I've jumped ahead a little bit in the story. Uh, so let me summarize what's happened before uh, in, in uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke has introduced us to three people thus far. You have, if you've read the, the chapter up to verse 57, you've met three people. You've met Zechariah, who is an old man, uh, who is also a Jewish priest. And you've met his wife, Elizabeth. Uh, who is likewise an old woman, and you have met Elizabeth's relative, who is a teenage girl named Mary. And after 400 years in which there has been no direct revelation from God, an angel uh, named Gabriel comes to Zechariah one day while he is serving in the temple and informs him that despite the fact that he is an old man with a wife who is past childbearing age that she is going to bear him a son and that that son is to be be named John. And the angel also says that this boy, John, is destined to fulfill Malachi's prophecy at the end of the Old Testament uh, of being the one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn people back to God. And Zechariah, out of what must have been some combination of overwhelming joy and incredible doubt, because who ever heard, aside from Abraham, of an old man and an old lady having a baby together? Questions the angel on it, and the angel says, It's going to happen, and because you didn't listen to what I said, you won't be able to speak until after it does. And so he comes out of the temple, and all he's able to do is to write out for people a description of what's happened to him because he can't talk. And he goes home, and he tells his wife what's happened. They get together, and she becomes pregnant. Wonder of wonders she becomes pregnant. And it's obvious to everyone that something amazing is happening. Because this kind of thing doesn't happen. I mean, it happens in the Bible sometimes. But there are typically hundreds of years between these events. If you read the Bible through, it makes it seem like miraculous things happen all the time, but it's been 400 years since there's been a prophet. If you go back in America's history 400 years, you get the pilgrims. Okay? It's been a while since we all wore, you know, uh, high high black hats and buckles on our shoes, right? And it's been 400 years, and there's been no prophet. And all of a sudden, here's this miracle baby being born. And just as the angel said, Zechariah is silent for nine long months. As the baby grows. Along the way, right alongside that story, you see another miracle announcement of a baby to be born. Mary, Elizabeth's relative, comes to see Elizabeth because she's going to see the one woman that she knows in her life that has any possibility of understanding what's happening. Because, you know, Zechariah and and Elizabeth did have a miracle happen, but their baby was conceived in the usual way. But Mary is pregnant with no man in the picture. And she lives with Elizabeth and Zechariah for three months while she's adjusting to the idea that she, a virgin girl, is going to bear a son who will be the son of God, the savior of the world. And they spend time together. And then she goes home to face her family. And all of the issues that are going on with that. And you see, even in the conception stories, that while one is miraculous, the other is even more miraculous. Miraculous. Where one is going to be the fulfillment of a particularly important Old Testament prophecy. The other is the fulfillment of an even more important Old Testament series of prophecies. And so while John will be great, Jesus will be greater. And Luke intertwines these stories. And that's where we pick up here, verse 57. Now when the time came for Elizabeth to give birth... For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now this isn't a complicated or confusing story in any way, but it is amazing. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see it happen? There's been no revelation from God for 400 years, but all of a sudden there's an angelic visitation, there's a special calling, there's a miracle baby. And there's an assignment laid on that child's shoulders to be the one who is going to turn people from wandering away from God to following Him once again. A couple who should be getting their AARP cards in the mail any day now is rocking their firstborn baby to sleep. Think about that. Their firstborn child. Okay? When I think about that at my age, I'm not I'm not that old, right? I'm only forty six. But when I think about having another child, it makes me profoundly tired. (laughs) Right? There's a reason you have your kids when you're young, right? I mean, one is so that you can race them to adulthood, right? Which one of you will grow up first, them or you, right? But the other is that you have enough energy to keep up with them, right? If you're a grandparent, you want to, you know, have your kids for a while, have your grandkids, you know, come by, and then you want to sugar them up and send them home, right? With drums, preferably, right? Um, (laughs) And a drum and a puppy will be given to every grandchild, right? (laughs) And then you send them off, right? And pay back your kids for how horrible they were to you, right? Um, But... But you have them when you're young. But here's this couple, this old husband and wife who've never had a baby in their life. And they're trading in their AARP membership for Babies Are Us, right? And they've got a stroller and a pack and play and a bassinet at their house for their little one. It's amazing. The text says in verse 65 and 66 that fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. Why were they afraid? I think it's because seeing God's power that directly sent a chill up their spines as they realized that God is moving among them in their own day. That things that God had said would happen are happening. And all of a sudden, all the little hairs on the back of their neck are standing up. And they're wondering, wow. Because, you know, it's easy as, and, and they did it too. To read the Bible and think about, oh, well, you know, that was back then. That was a long time ago. These kinds of things don't still happen. And all of a sudden, something that God had long ago predicted is happening right in their neighborhood with one of the people that they know. And they wonder, with a, a child with a miraculous birth like this, what purpose God could have for him. But as I said, this is only the second greatest birth that is happening at this time. And Luke intertwines the narrative with that of the greatest birth in history, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And we won't get into all of that this week, but we, what we will see as you read on, is what God's purpose was for this man, the second greatest man of his generation. So let's read on. Verse uh, 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow, God, guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, if you look at this, at this pronouncement, this prophetic statement that Zechariah makes, it divides into two parts. Uh, you know, we find out that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he knows uh, prophetically that his son's birth heralds the coming of Messiah. And so verses 68 down through 75 are his description of what the Messiah is going to do. And then you get also later a description of what his son's role in that will be. And so you get Messiah and John the Baptist. Messiah and John the Baptist. And you just as John lays them out through the text where they're intertwined, right here the the two roles are intertwined as well. And what you see in verses 68-75 is also a, a celebration. It's a hymn of praise, a prayer to God that all of these promises that have long been made to Israel are being fulfilled and are going to be fulfilled through the Messiah that John has been sent to announce. That if John is the herald, that means Messiah must be right around the corner. Because it's going to have to be within John's lifetime that Messiah comes. And so, Zechariah is thrilled by the fact that, that Messiah has come. And look at what Messiah will do. It says that he has visited and redeemed his people. Meaning that God has come. That word visited is the idea that God is among us. And He is redeeming. He is saving. He is buying us out of slavery. It's the idea of redemption. We've been set free. Set free from what? Well, He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. The idea of a horn is the idea of the the power of an animal. That's the thing that... That, that enacts and brings about their power. And the horn of salvation is the power of God at work to bring salvation. And he's brought it in the house of his servant David. David's house at this time is a bunch of nobodies. A bunch of washed up royalty from way back. There had been a kingdom of Israel since david they went into exile uh, under uh, in the days of zerubbabel you know they came back and he was the governor but they never became kings again and then they fought for their independence under the maccabees you know had this great had this, this priest with a great name Judas Maccabeus, which translates to Jude the Hammer, okay? I would like that name, I think, you know? Jude the Hammer. Sounds like a a fullback name. I mean, that's great, right? You know, just boom. This is the guy that drove out Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the guy who, who sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple and dedicated... Uh, an idol to Zeus and the temple of God and Jude the hammer and his sons and the army that they raised drive these guys out and they establish a new kingdom. But they don't go get a son of David to rule it. There's a succession of just corrupted and co-opted kings that follow. Eventually they just open wide the gates to the Romans and let them come in and rule. But Zechariah knows that the coming of Messiah means the coming of a kingdom for the son of David. coming of the son of David. And it says, as he spoke by the the mouth of his holy prophets of of old, that all these things that we've been looking forward to, all these things that we have read about and heard are happening now. Praise God. And he says, he he talks about how we're going to be saved from our enemies. Now, notice that he intertwines salvation and deliverance from our enemies all at the same time. Because, is that what the Messiah is going to do? Yes. Is he going to do all of it at the same time? No. But just as the Old Testament prophets spoke... So Zechariah is speaking about Messiah. He's going to do both of these things. Will there be a day when the, the people of God will dwell in security from all of their neighbors? Yes. I've read the end of the book. At the end of the book, it says the gates of the city are never shut. Why did you shut the gates? Well, you shut them at night to lock out all the people that you didn't want to get in. In the ancient world, that's how you kept the enemy out. But there will be a day when the gates are open 24-7, 365, because there will be no enemies. And there will not be anyone to make us afraid anymore because God will have put all the enemies under his feet. And it will be done through the Messiah. And that's what Zechariah is talking about. He's talking about mercy and salvation and deliverance and how God's covenant is being fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled in his own day. And so he praises God for that. But the second part of his prophecy is about about John and John's role, his destiny specifically. He says, you'll be the prophet of the Most High God. In other words, John, you're not going to be the Messiah. You're going to be the guy who runs ahead of the Messiah. The one who announces the Messiah's coming. In fact, he'll be the last of the Old Testament style prophets. And Jesus himself, think about this. This is what Jesus will say about John. Among all the people who have ever been born of a woman, none is greater than John. How'd you like to have that on your epitaph, right? No one was better than me. Jesus. (laughs) You know, just put that on your tombstone, right? Um, I was the best. The best man that's ever been. Or the best mere man that's ever been. Apart from Jesus himself. And his purpose is unique among all of the prophets. All the other prophets said about the coming of Messiah Messiah's coming! Messiah's coming! Messiah's coming! This is what he'll look like. This is the kind of stuff he'll do. You should look for the coming of this guy. What was John's role? This guy is the Messiah! This one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This guy is Messiah. Follow Him. What a cool thing. All the other prophets had to look forward hundreds, sometimes thousands of years to a Messiah whose birth and whose life they would never see. And John His job was to say, get ready, Messiah is coming. You need to repent of sin. You need to be looking for His coming because He is among us. And when He makes His public appearance, John says, I told you, this is the guy. Follow Him. He's the Messiah. He's the one who will bring salvation for your soul. He is the one who will bring deliverance from all your enemies one day. This is the Messiah. He is the one who who announces to the people of Israel forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of your sin. And to show people how they could be saved. It says, "Because verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. And it talks about the coming of Messiah as being like the coming of the sunrise from on high. To give light to those who sit in the darkness. Who are those who sit in the darkness? All of us. All of us. All the people who apart from faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will die and be separated from God in hell for eternity. All of those people are going to see the sunrise... You're going to see the light of Jesus shine into their life. And John's privilege is to announce Messiah's coming and what he will do. And to celebrate the eternal life that is available through faith in Jesus. John's calling was to say, Look, I'm not the light, but I will help you move with me towards the light, toward the one who is. I'll help you move out of the darkness. He was the the best man leading the bride to her groom, if you will. That's how he's described in the rest of the Gospels. And And he hands off the bride to the groom that the two of them might live joyfully together forever and ever. Now, as I've thought about this passage this week, I've realized a couple of things. Uh, One, that none of us have nearly the importance in God's plan that John the Baptist did. He had a unique calling, and he was a great and a good man, perhaps the greatest man who ever lived other than Jesus himself. But I've also realized something else, that we do share as believers in Jesus Christ some aspects of our calling with John the Baptist. Number one, we share with him, we've been entrusted like he was with the message of repentance and salvation and forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus Christ just like he was. And John was faithful until his martyrdom to carry that message out. He shared the message of repentance and faith uh, and forgiveness with everyone he met without fear or favor. He confronted the religious leaders. You may remember. He's pretty pretty acerbic, fairly acidic in what he had to say to them. When When the Pharisees would come out who... Who felt that they could trust in their own righteousness and that they were so good and so holy that God would let them in without any question because obviously I mean you know look at my life I mean God you're welcome right that's kind of how they were and John says to them hey you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath of God And he tells them, you too need to repent. You too need to repent. John was willing to tell King Herod, the son of Herod the Great, the son of the king who was, uh, who was ruling when Jesus was born, had, had, he had several sons, uh, a number of which he murdered, but one of them was uh, a guy named Herod Agrippa, and he tells Herod Agrippa that the fact that you have robbed your brother of his wife and have married her is not good and you're an adulterous thief Herod put him in prison and then chopped off his head as a result of that but John was not afraid to tell the truth with the bark on and he was not afraid that somebody might be offended by the fact that they need to repent of their sin. Now, I'm not recommending that you go out and tell all your co-workers you're a brood of vipers. <laughs> all right? Although you might. might be a good idea. Maybe that somebody would be convicted by that and want to know, know more about repentance and salvation and forgiveness of sin. All right? I wouldn't do that unless the Lord tells you to do that. But our calling is to be faithful, to carry the message to every kind of person. Without fear, without without wondering if, well, you know, this kind of person might not hear what I have to say. Or this kind of person sharing with them might get me in trouble. What John did was faithfully carry the message he had been entrusted with. And so his life challenges me, and as I hope it challenges you to do the same thing, because you have been entrusted with the same message, to say to people, this is the Messiah. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, the virgin-born Son of God, who is also Son of David, is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and who, if you do not repent, will return as your judge. And you can have Him as Savior and Lord and God and Messiah, the one who forgives you of all of your sin, the one who welcomes you into His family, or you can have Him as judge who will condemn you to hell, and you get to choose which it will be. But our calling is to faithfully carry that message out into the world. And Christmas is as good a time as any to do that. Amen? People are already listening. They already know that that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. Many of them don't know why Jesus' birth is significant enough to have a whole season and holiday devoted to it. but They already know it's about the birth of Jesus. And so you can do this. You can do things like this. So how do you guys celebrate Christmas at your house? Can they tell you how they celebrate? You can tell them how you celebrate. Maybe you might bring this up and say something like this. Well, you know, since Christmas is about Jesus, how do you guys honor Jesus? What do you think about Jesus at your house? Do you know who he is? Do you know why Christmas is a big deal? And you could share with them then, if they don't know, who Jesus is and what makes his birth significant. It is the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy of a Messiah who would come to take away the sin of the world. That Jesus is born to die on a cross to pay for sin. That no one would have to die and go to hell. But that only those who put their trust in him will be in heaven with him forever. And if you know him, you have a lot to celebrate at Christmas. But if you don't know him, then the fact that you're celebrating actually makes you accountable for the sin that you've committed because you acknowledge His birth as important, but don't acknowledge Him as Savior. We have a calling, just like John's, to proclaim Christ, to tell people to repent and to be forgiven, and to receive salvation. But in addition to that, from John's calling is that he is to be the second greatest person next to Jesus and men and women boys and girls people of God guess what our calling is in our own life it is not to be the greatest but to be the second greatest person in our lives I don't know about you but I spend a lot of my time thinking about myself and about what I want what I think what I want to do with my day with my life with my whatever right in fact my and I are some of my favorite words right I bet that's true of you too. But the reality is if we're followers of Jesus, then we're not called to be preeminent in our own heart, in our own life. We're called to come in second to Jesus. And to think most about what He wants and what He desires and what would please Him and how we might follow Him him and do what he is calling us to do and what his desires for our life would be and to make much of him and less of ourselves i heard a good definition of humility and and humility sometimes we think you know it looks like uh, kind of hanging your head and kicking your toe in the dirt and oh I'm no good I'm, I'm, you, know, I'm uh, so, you know you can't take a compliment or any of that kind of thing that's not humility humility is not thinking less of yourself humility is thinking of yourself less less often with less importance with less significance with with thinking of yourself as driving a smaller number of your decisions and thinking more of Jesus and what He would call you to do and what He would want for your life, how He would want you to spend your time, what He would want you to think about, what He would want you to say. It's intentionally coming in second in your own life to Jesus and submitting to him that he that we might diminish in importance in our own souls and might uh, magnify and exalt Christ with everything that we do and say and think and john everything that we know about him says that he did that because as soon as he's born what does he go and do they take him out to the wilderness where he lives until the time that God has laid on his life. He lives on a diet of grasshoppers and wild honey. I was in Africa one time and we were offered grasshoppers. I did not eat one. <laughs> right? There's nothing in in my life growing up in the United States of America that makes me think, eat an insect. They're tasty, right? But John lived on insects and wild honey. Think about that. He wore as his clothing a coat made out of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He looked like Elijah. He's a wild man from the wilderness. And he lived that way because he knew what his calling was, that he would make much of Jesus and less of himself. I wonder how your life would change, how my life would change, if we took the same attitude. That My own comfort, my own thoughts, my own will, my own desires matter far less than what does Jesus want me to do with my life. Jesus wants to be the greatest person in our life and that automatically means that my position is what? Second greatest. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of John the Baptist. We thank you for... Uh, the calling you laid on his life of identifying the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and for the way that he was faithful to fulfill that calling that nobody would miss. This is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, I pray that to the degree that we share John's calling to make much of Jesus and little of ourselves to point out the Messiah to the people that you have put us uh, around and with. Uh, Father, I pray that we would be faithful to that. I pray that, um, that we would be faithful just as he was, uh, to be committed to having Jesus increase and ourselves decrease, and that we might faithfully proclaim the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and of repentance and forgiveness from sin. Uh, to all the people that you have placed in our path until the day that you come and take us home. And Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help in all this because we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask for your empowerment, your help, your aid because we are desperately in need of transformation by the Spirit if we're to be faithful in doing anything. And following you. And Father, we pray that we might proclaim Christ at this season in a faithful way. In Jesus' name, amen.